Today's reading comes from Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. As you're being seated, let me pray again. Father, we we love your word. We know that it, it leads us and it guides us, and so Father, we um, want to prepare our hearts to be that good soil that as the seed of your word uh, is planted, that it would bear much fruit, that it would not be lost, but that we would apply it in our lives. We wouldn't just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're continuing, as you just heard, in the book of Jonah, which we started last week. And last week, if you remember, uh, we were introduced to the main characters of the book, the two main characters of the book, Jonah and God. And we learned that God called Jonah to go east to a city called Nineveh to preach to them. But Jonah not only doesn't go to Nineveh, he goes in the opposite direction, doesn't he? He charters a boat and heads west by sea to a place called Tarshish, which if you remember the map, uh, is essentially the far end of the known world at the time, showing us that he is going as far in the opposite direction as he possibly can. And we're told that Jonah isn't just running from the call of God on his life, but he's running from the God who had called him. It's repeated a number of times. It says that he runs from the presence of the Lord. So the scene is set for us, and we have this so-called prophet of God who is on the run. And Why is he on the run? Well, it's because he hates the people that he has been called to preach to. That's why. He hates the people he has been called to preach to, and so he hates the fact that his God, who he knows is merciful and gracious, might just show them mercy and grace. Let me just say this. 
In the same way as if you hate God, you're going to struggle to love people. If you hate people, you are always going to be in conflict with the loving God. If you hate anyone, if you hate people, you are always going to be in conflict with a loving God. And that's what we see in the life of Jonah in Christ City. What I'm hoping that we're picking up, and as we go through this book, we will pick up, is that Jonah acts as a bit of a mirror to us. He acts as a mirror to us, as a, as a cautionary tale to those of us who, who claim to follow God, but sometimes, or maybe often, run from Him. Run from His call and His commands in our lives. To those of us who do the opposite of what God has called us to do. Today, as we continue in the story, we come across a story within the story, a, a subplot, as it were, in the larger plot of the book, with an interaction between Jonah and a set of pagan sailors. It says mariners in the ESV, but I'm going to say sailors. Contrast between Jonah and the pagan sailors. And what I want us to see today is this, that this interaction is going to not only expose further Jonah's foolish behavior, but it's going to also reveal to us the nature and the character of God. And as such, this scene, I think, for us, the church, should challenge us in how we live as as God's people, as God's ambassadors, as his witnesses in the world, but also it's going to remind us of the nature of the God that we serve. Remind us of his character. So here's what I want to do today. I want to, I want to simply walk through this text verse by verse, and I want to do so by posing the three questions that the sailors ask Jonah. Three questions that the sailors ask Jonah. And I want us to have in mind as we go through these questions, that these are the sort of questions that our neighbors and our colleagues have for us, that our city have for us. These are the sort of questions that a watching world has for the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You stumbled in or you've been invited. You're so welcome. And maybe these are the sort of questions you have for us. Now, I'm going to hope over the course of today, I'll begin to answer some of these questions, but hopefully it's the start of a dialogue between us. So here's the questions. Three questions that the sailors ask Jonah. Number one, what are you doing? Number two, who is your God? Number three, what must we do? What are you doing? Who is your God? What must we do? So first point, what are you doing? Verse 4 says this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So Jonah, he's running from God. He sails out to sea, and it says he gets caught in the storm. But this storm is, is not a natural coincidence, we're told. It's, it's a divine initiative. It's God who sends the storm. And at first, this storm might be interpreted, as we read it, as God's judgment upon Jonah. And in a sense, it is. In fact, that would make sense because in the Old Testament, often storms symbolize or represent God's anger towards sin, his righteous anger towards sin. But for clarity, two things are worth noting here. First, 
Storms are not always a result of God's judgment against sin. Hopefully that's obvious, but let me just say it. Storms are not always a result of God's judgment against sin in the same way as hardship in your life or difficulty is not always a result of your sin. Tim Keller, the pastor theologian, is helpful here when he says this. He says, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is a result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. It does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. And this is what is happening here. In this case, it's clear from the text that the storm is a result of Jonah's disobedience. So in a sense, this difficulty has been brought on as God's response against Jonah's sin. But the second clarifying point I want to make here is that this storm, as we're going to see, is better understood not simply as an expression of God's judgment, but rather as a vehicle of his mercy. It's better understood not as an expression of judgment, but as an expression of mercy. Christ City, this storm is not a weapon in the hands of a malevolent God. It's not a weapon in his hands. Rather, it is a strong, yes, it's a strong hand. But it's a tender hand. It's the hands of a compassionate God whose desire is always to restore rather than destroy. It's always God's desire to restore rather than to destroy. God, as the Apostle Peter says, does not will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God sends the storm, yes, but not to destroy Jonah, but as a severe mercy, as a severe mercy to draw him back to himself. And so the storm comes. And it's at this point in the story that we're introduced to the sailors, characters in the scene who are going to act as an almost a foil against Jonah, a a contrast to the the behavior of Jonah that we see. And so we read in verse 5, it says this, Then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it from them, for them. So, so in response to the storm that had come, what, what do they do? They do what all human beings do in the midst of a storm when the boat is breaking. They do everything they can. They hive of activity. They're throwing the cargo out. They do all that they can and they cry out to the sky in the hope that someone will listen. They try everything and anything to stay alive, even pray. And that's what we do, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian here or not. It doesn't matter if you're particularly religious or not. Naturally, it seems, humans pray. Humans pray, particularly when the storms of life set in. I was listening to a podcast the other day with a guy called Andrew Huberman. You may or may not know him. He's a professor of neurobiology at Stanford University, and he's not a Christian to my knowledge, or even particularly religious. And almost sheepishly in the podcast, he says that he prays. He doesn't know who to. He doesn't even know particularly why. But he says that he is inclined to pray. Great theologian John Calvin 
would call this the divinitatis sensum, the sense of divinity that all humans have within us that calls out to God, that reaches up to heaven. And actually, when the storms of life come, that sense is almost provoked in us. And so we pray. Christ City, everyone in Vancouver has this. Everyone in Vancouver, your neighbor, your colleagues, that longing for God. We might satisfy it in different places, but we all have it. And particularly when the storms of life come, that longing is magnified. And so the pagan sailors, they pray. What does Jonah do? Verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. In contrast to the sailors, a hive of activity, prayer to their gods. Jonah, inactivity. He's so inactive, he's asleep. And for the keen-eyed among you, you'll have noticed the repetition of the word down. He went down, he, he laid down, and it picks up, if you remember, the movement that began last week. As God calls Jonah up, he goes down and that movement hasn't stopped. He's, he's spiraling and we're supposed to see that. Eventually, as you'd expect, it leads to our first question. The captain speaks up. He says in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Which is a translation of, what are you doing? How can you sleep at a time like this? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Get up, call out to your God. Christ City, this is the first challenge for us, I think, in this text. When the trials of life come, when the world starts to fall apart, what will our city find the church doing? What will our city find the church doing? What will our neighbors find us doing? Christ City, Jonah's inactivity was a result of a religion that had turned in on itself, that had become inward-focused as opposed to outward-focused, a self-centered religion that had turned away from a God who loves others and therefore turned away from loving others. The result of this is that these pagan sailors were showing more piety, more faith, more spiritual maturity than this so-called man of God. Christ said, this is meant to confront us. Because when our neighbors are looking for God, which they are, when they're looking for God, if the church is asleep, how will they find him? How will they find him? How will they hear of him? The Apostle Paul in Romans says this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful statement. Everyone, including you here, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But then he goes on and he challenges us. In verse 14 of chapter 10, he says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Christ City, we have been sent. We have been sent. We are the church. You are the church. You have been sent. 
not to hide in the hole like Jonah, but to go out and preach the good news of Jesus to the world. First question today is, what are we doing? What are we doing? Are, are we, like Jonah, turned in on ourselves? Or are we, as God is, outward focused? Are we, are we looking to our city? Are we in fervent prayer for our city and hope that they would hear the good news and be saved? Are we loving people in the name of Jesus so that our neighbors might have a name to give to their longing? First challenge today, what are we doing? What are we doing? Second question is, who is your God? Verse 7 says this, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So the boat is breaking, they're about to die, and so as a last resort, they try and find out the source of the storm, and so they cast lots, which is a sermon for another day. Um, but the point is, it points towards Jonah. And what do they do? Again, they do what all humans would do. They start interrogating him. Verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Now, we might think this is a strange set of questions to ask at a time like this. Like, where are you from? What do you do for a living? I'm an accountant from Langley. No, like, there's a storm. In the ancient world, all of these questions would have pointed to the answer that they're actually after, which is this. Who is your God? Who is your God? Who is this God that he has offended? And Jonah tells them, says to them in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? Now, what's surprising here is that Jonah acts for the first time in the book like the prophet he's supposed to be. Finally, he's a prophet who speaks. And despite his disobedience, he reveals the name and the nature of the God that he serves to these pagan sailors. And as you can imagine, Jonah's answer simply compounds their fears, right? It adds to their confusion of the whole situation. The, the what are you doing in verse 6 is now changed to what have you done, right? If this is your God, the God who made the sea, why are you trying to run from him in a boat? Here's what I want us to notice here. Because this moment, this is the moment that, that, that turns the text, this moment of theological Clarity, as Jonah speaks the truth of who God is, as Jonah reveals the name of God to the pagan sailors, is going to do two things. First, it's going to expose Jonah's foolishness, but second, it's going to show us that God can even use fools. It's going to expose Jonah as the fool that he is, but it's going to show us that God can even use fools. 
See, for Jonah, who, who claims to know God, this moment reveals that there is a dissonance, right, between his theology and his life. There is a dissonance between his words and his actions. He claims that he fears the Lord, and the irony is that his actions show that he really doesn't. He claims that his God is the God over everything and everyone at all times, and yet he tries to run from him. And this is another warning for us, church, for those of us that, that can recite truths about who God is, who, who love to sing truths, maybe, about who Jesus is. We know the right things to say, but we don't live according to those truths. It's a challenge. We claim that God is in control, and, and we live as if he isn't. We claim, we claim that he knows best, and then we live as if he doesn't. We claim these glorious truths of the gospel, that we're loved, and that we're redeemed, and that we're restored, and we're forgiven. And we live as if he hasn't done those things in our lives. Christ City Jonah acts as a challenge to us to get our feet in step with our theology to get our feet in step with our theology, to get our lives aligned to the truths that we know. But I think more than that, this little section also reminds us that the God that we serve is powerful enough to use broken vessels. He's powerful enough to use even fools like Jonah and me. One of the most interesting things about this scene is that despite Jonah, not because of Jonah, but almost despite Jonah, God uses Jonah to transform the sailors. He uses him. At the end of this little subplot that we're in, the sailors, it says they worship God. And I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I'm nervous to tell people about Jesus is because I don't often live up to being a Christian. <laughs> I'm worried about that concern that my theology and my life is such a big gap. And so I don't want to talk about Jesus because I think, look at me. I don't feel like I live up, but let me just say this. We never do. One of the, one of the tactics of the enemy in the church is to point to that gap and say that we need to abandon our ideals. Abandon the truth because we can't live up to it. Let me just say, Jonah is just one of many examples in the Bible and throughout history that shows us that God uses weak people for his glory. That's what he does. In fact, that's what he has to do because that's all he's got. <laughs> You know, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, we have a treasure in the jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Cressidy, the most important thing about Jonah is not who he is, it's who his God is. That's true of us. It's true of us. The most important thing about us is who our God is. And that's what we're called to do. We're called, we're called to point people to our God, not to ourselves. Last point today. 
But what are you doing? Who is your God? Last question, what must we do? Verse 11 says this, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now for the sailors, the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together. They know that their gods and their actions were not going to save them. They tried everything and it wasn't saving them. And they now know it's because this storm has been brought about by a God beyond their power, beyond the power of their own gods. And so they asked the next logical question, what should we do? What should we do? In fact, they say, what should we do to you? Jonah answers with the logical answer. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah tells them to throw him overboard. For clarity here, he's saying, kill me. He's saying, kill me. You throw someone over the, overboard in a storm, you're killing them. And eventually, they're obviously reluctant to do this, so they try everything. They try their actions again, right? They start rowing. They do everything that they can, and then the sailors realize there's only one thing that can be done. And just like they threw the cargo over the ship, they now throw Jonah into the sea, and immediately, it's calm. It's over. It's calm. As a result of closing verses today, as I mentioned earlier, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors, it says, feared the Lord. They, they worshipped God. Now, we might be tempted here to think that Jonah's self-sacrificial actions are noble. We might be tempted here to, to think that he is... He is doing a noble act in asking to be thrown overboard. But that's actually not what's happening here. You see, while Jonah acknowledges, yes, it's his fault, he's the reason the storm's here, and that throwing him overboard is, is the way, the means by which the storm will stop, we're not supposed to see this as a heroic act from Jonah. It's not supposed to be a heroic act to save others, but rather it is a continuation of his disobedience and his running from God. That's what this is. You think about it for a second. Presumably, and, and Jonah knows this, he could have simply repented and the storm would have ceased. He could have repented and the storm would have stopped, but here's the problem with repentance. It would have been would have meant turning around. It would have meant turning around. It would have meant going back and doing what God had called him to do. It would have meant turning from Tarshish to Nineveh. You see, this act of self-sacrifice wasn't motivated by saving the sailors, although it does save the sailors. It was motivated by Jonah's reluctance to save Nineveh. That's what's happening here. 
And so this spiral down that we began last week is now taking us both literally and figuratively to the bottom, to the depths. And you know, if this is where the story ended, you might start to question God. You might start to think that God is a malevolent, angry, vindictive God. You see, from the sailor's point of view, think about this. From the sailor's point of view, Jonah, this man that they found on their ship, had run from his God. This God had judged him with a storm. And as, as a result, he, he decided to appease this God by sacrificing himself. The, the God that the sailors had just encountered might have been just, but he wasn't merciful. From their perspective, he might, he might have been just, but he wasn't merciful. He had shown himself to be powerful, but he hadn't shown himself to be good or compassionate. From their perspective, Jonah is dead and his God is satisfied. That's it. Gratefully, that's not where the story ends. If that was the only manuscript that we had... Gratefully, that's not where the story ends because the point of the story of Jonah is not just to show us that God is just. It's to show us that God is merciful. The point of the story of Jonah isn't just to show his power to us, but it's to show us that this powerful God is also compassionate. That although he is righteously angry towards sin and Make no mistake, God is righteously angry towards sin. He is also, as well as we'll hear later in chapter 4, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's our God. And so we read in the very next verse, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. For those of you who are waiting, we've finally come to the fish. <laughs> but I'll explain it next week. Do you see? Christ City, Jonah is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. A God who is powerful enough to move heaven and earth to achieve his purposes but when we see what his purposes are, we see that they are for our redemption and for our salvation. We have a God who is powerful, yes. But in his power, he moves heaven and earth to achieve his redemptive purposes. And so our final question today, what must we do? What must we do? Maybe you're here today and you're asking that question, what must I do? What happens when, like the sailors, we are confronted with the God of heaven? We're confronted with the God of the universe. When we're caught up in a breaking ship, what do we need to do to be saved? What sacrifice do we need to make? Who, who do we need to throw overboard? I want to suggest that this is the perennial question of human existence. The perennial question of human existence that longs for God but also knows deep down that there is a chasm between us. That longs for transcendence but cannot reach it. 
longs for meaning, but is separated from it. This same question was asked by a man to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. In Acts 17, there's a man who is confronted by the power of God, and he asks the very same question, what shall I do to be saved? And Paul replies, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Why, why is that what we need to do? Why would that be what we need to do? Well, because the story of Jonah is itself a subplot. Do you know that? The story of Jonah is a subplot within the wider plot of the Bible. You see, Jonah's story points us to a bigger story, the story of Jesus. And in our passage today, we're not only supposed to see a contrast between Jonah and the sailors, what we're supposed to see, church is a contrast between Jonah and Jesus. A contrast between Jonah and our Savior. Jonah who ran in obedience from the call of God. Jesus who walked in absolute obedience to the Father. Jonah who would rather die than see his enemies saved. Jesus who would go to the cross and be put to death for the sake of his enemies. Jonah, who is the guilty one, the guilty one who is sacrificed, who is sent to his death in the place of innocent sailors, but Jesus, who is the only innocent man to ever walk the earth, who is sacrificed, who is put to death for the sake of a guilty world, for the sake of sinners like you and me. Christ said to you, what must we do? We need to trust in what he has done. That's it. What must we do? We trust in what he has done. If you're new to church or new to Christianity or you're like me, you're tempted to forget some of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Let me just say, Christianity is not about what we need to do. It's about trusting in what he has already done on our behalf. That's the foundation. So when your neighbor or your colleague comes to you and asks you what they need to do, what do, what do I need to do to be saved? What do we say? Stop sleeping with your girlfriend. No. What do we say? Do, do these set of religious practices pray? No. We say that they need to trust in the sufficient work of Christ on their behalf on the cross. They need to trust in the sufficient work of Christ on their behalf to rest in his grace and his mercy and the transformed life that flows from that. That comes afterwards. The changed life comes from that. If you're not a Christian here today, let me just say, you do need to be made right with God. That distance that you feel is, is real. 
You do need to be made right with God, but there is nothing that you can do to be made right with God. You need to trust in what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's all you can do. Fall on him. Rest on him. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, Jonah, the book of Jonah is a challenge to us. It's a mirror to the church. It should challenge us, church. Challenge us to live our lives as we bear witness to this truth. As we bear witness to a watching world, challenge us to, to keep our feet in step with our theology. But ultimately, it is also to remind us of our great and merciful God. Our God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the God that we serve. Who though we run from him, he pursues us. He pursues us all the way to the cross. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we respond?